All right, let's jump in. Welcome to the podcast, Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my husband and partner in crime, Ricky. The purpose of this podcast is to honor the victims through ethical storytelling in the hopes of preventing future tragedies. We want our stories to resonate and educate others in hopes that some of these similar cases with identifiable patterns can be prevented. Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. Gail Weingarten grew up as one of eight children in Ottawa County, Michigan. What her family lacked in material things, they more than made up for with love. Gail, who loved having a big family, knew that one day she wanted to be married with children of her own. She was a happy and cheerful child with a hard work ethic and a drive to succeed. As a teenager, she got a job as a waitress to provide the extra things that she wanted for herself and her siblings. At 18 years old, she met a man by the name of Lars, who swept her off her feet, and the two soon moved in together. After putting in a long day of work, Gail would help Lars build their home together. But Lars was far from perfect, and he didn't have the qualities that Gail had always dreamed about in a husband. He could be quite scary and abusive. After a year together, 19-year-old Gail met 25-year-old contractor Rick Brink, and it was love at first sight. She was instantly captivated by Rick, and he felt the same way. After they first met, Rick went home and told his mother he met this woman he intended to marry, and he told her that Gail was a green-eyed, brown-haired beauty who radiated sunshine. Within days of meeting him, Gail finally felt brave enough to leave her abusive relationship with Lars. And while Gail was packing up her things, Lars slammed Gail's arm in the drawer, badly bruising it, and struck her in the face, giving her a black eye. Gail's older brother, Ryan, was so livid when he heard about Gail's injuries that he confronted Lars. The two got into a physical fight, with Ryan warning him to stay away from his sister for good. Within days of breaking up with Lars, Gail began dating Rick, and the two were an instant couple. Rick's family had a boat, and soon Gail had learned to water ski, and she fit right in with the rest of the Brink family. It wasn't a surprise when, a year later, the two married in a small ceremony surrounded by family and friends. The following year, Rick's dad helped the young couple buy their first home together. It was a fixer-upper, in lousy shape, on 20 acres of beautiful land. Never afraid of hard work, Gail and Rick were soon knocking down walls, installing cabinets, and refinishing floors. The house had previously belonged to a drug dealer by the name of Shotgun Sid, and it was in desperate need of some love and care. Almost a year to the day they purchased the property, Gail had some exciting news to share. 
Archie told her older sister, Cheryl, that the next room they intended to renovate was the room they hoped to eventually turn into a nursery. The happy couple was finally ready to start trying for that family they both had always dreamed of having. But that dream would end for both of them on November 21st, 1987. On that day, Rick and Gail attended a wedding for one of Rick's high school friends. They left the reception that night at 11 o'clock p.m., and that was the last time anyone except for the killer had seen them alive. That Monday morning, when Rick failed to show up for work as a construction manager with a large construction company, this was unlike him, and his boss became concerned. They called Rick's parents and told them that Rick didn't show up for work, and he wasn't answering his home phone. According to court records, Rick's boss and parents both went to their home on Ransom Road to check on the young couple. They had already called Gail's work and discovered that she didn't show up for work either. They were hoping that maybe this was a misunderstanding and perhaps the couple decided to go out of town for a few days. Their hopes were dashed when they made their first gruesome discovery. There in the driveway of Rick's Chevy Blazer was his body. He had suffered two gunshot wounds point-blank to the left side of his head. He was slumped over with his upper body leaning over the passenger seat. There was a bullet hole that went through the right side of the passenger window. Later, police would surmise that the killer stood outside the driver's door and Rick had felt comfortable enough to lower the window of his blazer to talk to his killer. Rick's parents didn't enter the house, fearing what else they may find. When law enforcement arrived, they found Gail in her bed, and it looked like she was sleeping, but the pillow was directly placed over her head. One of the responding officers discovered Gail had been shot three times in the face, At first, they wondered if they maybe were dealing with a murder-suicide. Had Rick shot Gail and then planned to leave to make a run for it? Did he have remorse and then he decided to kill himself too? The only problem with this theory was that there was no gun found inside Rick's car. The killer had taken the gun with him or her, which was later determined to be a 22 caliber handgun. From the evidence so far, it was looking as if the killer was known to the victims. It's common for someone close to the victim to want to obliterate their face and then cover it if they were filled with rage and then possibly remorse. It also made sense why Rick would lower his car window for someone if he didn't feel threatened by them. It appeared from the stage of decomposition that they were killed sometime in the early morning hours after they attended the wedding. Both Rick's family and Gail's family were devastated. All they wanted were answers and a measure of justice. Now, police were able to rule out robbery right away. The home didn't appear to be ransacked, and Gail's purse remained untouched. They found two watches and Rick's wallet on the kitchen counter. Both of their wallets had money and credit cards inside. There was also cash found throughout the house as well as Gail's jewelry. And police didn't find a weapon or shell casings, which showed that the killer had time to retrieve the spent casings and clean up after himself. The only bullets ever found were those that were inside the bodies of their two victims. 
At first, police began investigating whether this was a matter of the wrong people in the right place. They began investigating whether someone affiliated with a motorcycle gang who was involved with the previous owner, Shotgun Sid, was involved. It turns out that Sid was a police informant, and for a while, that working theory was that someone who wanted to get back at Sid for being a snitch killed the new owners by accident. Eventually, that theory was dispelled, and they began investigating the families and then the exes of both victims. That included Gail's previously abusive boyfriend, Lars. And it turns out, Lars had a solid alibi at the time of the killings. After exhausting all leads at the time, the case eventually went cold. The initial police investigation failed to result in an explanation for what occurred and no arrests were ever made. Their case sat in a box in a file room for over two decades. But that all changed when the Ottawa County Sheriff's Department formed a cold case unit in 2010. They began by investigating two other murders that first appeared to be related to the Brinks case. However, the suspect in one of those cases died and the suspect in the other case confessed. That left the Gale and Rick Brink case. The two detectives assigned to this cold case unit began by going through all of the witness statements in the case. There were almost 70 witness statements to go through. That is when they discovered an inconsistency in the statement given by Pam Weingarten. They found this inconsistency interesting because it was for an alibi given to Gail's brother, Ryan Weingarten. At the time of the initial investigation, it was Ryan who had tried to steer the investigation in other directions. He offered up both Lars as a suspect as well as the previous owner, Shotgun Sid. He told authorities he had heard rumors that it could have been a motorcycle gang that had killed his sister and brother-in-law. Now, at the time of Pam's original statement, she was Pam Maraschini, and she was the mother to a six-month-old son from a previous relationship. She had only been dating Ryan for a few months at the time of Rick and Gail's murder. In December of 1987, she provided Ryan with an alibi. She told police that both she and Ryan had been doing laundry at the laundromat. However, they didn't have enough money to finish their laundry, so they took it over to Pam's friend's house. Her name was Ross. She told investigators that Ryan was with her the entire time, and the two stayed over, and then they went home the next day. The inconsistency came when they checked Pam's statement against the answers she gave a few months later when she took a lie detector test. During that time when she was asked if Ryan was with her the entire evening, she answered no. At first, this was just an inconsistency that they wanted to follow up on. So the cold case unit contacted both Ryan and Pam and asked them both to come down for a re-interview. This seemed standard practice for Ryan because he knew that other members of his family were also going to be interviewed. At this time, they knew that a year and a half after Gail and Rick's murder, Pam and Ryan married. They proceeded to have three more children, Caleb, Elisa, and Benjamin. Shortly after they married, Pam became the family breadwinner, working full-time to support her husband and children. Ryan was a stay-at-home father and homeschooled all of their children over Pam's objections. However, Ryan was extremely controlling throughout his marriage to Pam, and her objections were ignored.
Hi, this is Daniel Roof, the Real GM Radio Podcast. It's a Texas showdown in the postseason, and Bet Online is your number one source for all your baseball wagering information with up to the minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. Bet Online has everything you need to stay up to speed on each league championship series all the way through the World Series. And don't forget, Bet Online is where you get the latest game odds, spreads, and totals for the NFL and college football right at your fingertips. Bet Online has real time updates on statistics, news, and odds. We're serious up betting on football. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action at Bet Online, where the game starts. The Cold Case Unit set up their first free interviews of Pam and Ryan on October 1st, 2012. Both Pam and Ryan drove separately to their interviews because Pam had to go back to work after they were concluded. She didn't know the way to the police station, so she followed Ryan at his request. For a week before the interview, Ryan reminded Pam every day that his alibi was, quote, true. He repeated the alibi that they were both at her friend Roz's house the night of the murder and doing laundry. Pam told Ryan that she was prepared to stick to her original story, but that wasn't good enough for Ryan. He insisted that Pam tell him it was true. So each time he asked, she admitted it was true. Once they arrived at the police station, Ryan demanded to be present during Pam's interview. The cold case detectives told him that wasn't the way they conducted interviews and they couldn't make an exception this time. When they began telling him that his behavior was suspicious and controlling, he finally agreed to let Pam be interviewed alone. Before agreeing, Ryan demanded to have one more minute with his wife alone. All of this was setting off alarm bells to detectives. Pam's interview lasted three hours and ended when Ryan began banging on the door asking when it was going to be over. For the most part, Pam stuck to her original story, but with one minor change. She remembered that Ryan left for a few hours that evening. Essentially, she admitted that she lied to the police. Ryan was interviewed right after Pam, and they confronted him with this new information, and he denied it. He said either they were lying or for some reason Pam was lying. After the interview, he called Pam and said, quote, I can't believe you threw me under the bus. Later that evening, he was still ranting and raving at Pam, accusing her of being a traitor and wanting to get him into trouble. But then he took a different approach. He apologized to Pam and said he was sorry that he left her alone with the detectives. He insisted that they must have bullied her and manipulated her into changing her story. He told her that she had been mistreated and he was going to sue the police department for psychologically confusing his wife. He called the lead detective and left a threatening message. He told them that they were wasting his time and Pam's time and his family's time. Then he told them that they should investigate the motorcycle gang that was affiliated with Shotgun Sid in the late 80s. He told detectives not to speak with his wife again unless she had an attorney present. Ryan's behavior was so suspicious that detectives immediately wanted to know more about him and his relationship with his sister, Gail. They interviewed his ex-girlfriend, Crystal, hoping for something that would turn into a lead. Other than the fact that she was dating Ryan at the same time he was dating Pam, there wasn't much else she knew. Detectives thanked her for coming in, and as she almost reached the door, she turned back around and said, well, there is one thing. That one thing would turn out to be huge. 
She told investigators that Ryan would often say inappropriate things about his sister, Gail. Once, he showed Crystal a photo of his sister on a boat. In the photo, Gail was wearing a bikini. According to Crystal, Ryan said, quote, Isn't my sister hot? Look at her amazing body. She's so hot. He also told Crystal that he was staring so hard at his sister's body that day on the boat that her husband noticed and said something to him about it. Then Crystal shared the most stunning news of all. She said that Ryan had confessed to her that when they were children, when Gail was only nine and he was almost 13, he had a consensual sexual relationship with his sister. But another time, he said that he knew some of those times she wanted to say no, but he would have sex with her anyway. This stunned detectives, which led them to discuss the matter with other members of Gail's family. They began interviewing Cheryl Murphy, Gail's older sister. They discovered from Cheryl that she and her brother Ryan had been estranged for the past few years over a financial matter. However, right after his interview with police, Ryan went to Cheryl's house and did something out of character. He apologized and told her that he missed her and wanted to make up again. He told her that he had been interviewed by police and it prompted him to make up with Cheryl because life is short and family was important. Then he reminded Cheryl that blood was thicker than water. Police found this extremely interesting, especially given what Cheryl had to tell them. Cheryl told investigators that a few days after Gail and Rick's murders, Ryan told her, quote, You know, sometimes I wonder if I could have done this. Then he told her that he imagined that someone told Gail that they'd be right back and then walked down the long hallway. At the time, Cheryl attributed Ryan's odd behavior and comments to just shock and grief. Ryan had also done other odd things after the murders. He offered to sell the waterbed where Gail had been murdered to a family friend for, quote, a good deal. They found other friends of Ryan's who shared that Ryan would often make sexual comments about his sister. A week after the murders, he tearfully confided to another friend that he had a past sexual relationship with Gail as a teenager, and he felt bad because the last time they were together, he, quote, forced her. The cold case detectives learned from Ryan's Aunt Narva that both Ryan and Gail called her on the day of Gail and Rick's murder. Gail called to complain that Ryan owed her money. Ryan called to complain that Gail considered herself too good for their family. His parents had recently sold their home and were living with their younger children in an RV. They were parking the RV at Ryan's home. However, Ryan's neighbors complained, and the city informed them it was illegal to park their RV at his home for an extended period of time. According to Aunt Narva, Ryan had asked Gail to allow their parents to park their RV somewhere on her 20 acres of land, close to a water and electrical source. According to Ryan, Gail allegedly refused, saying she didn't want to be responsible for providing for her younger siblings. At Gail's funeral, Ryan asked his Aunt Narva if she thought he was capable of killing Gail and Rick. He also told his Aunt Narva that Gail and Rick would probably still be alive if they would have allowed their parents to park their trailer at their home. So yeah, this all paints a very different picture for police. After all of this new information came to light about Ryan molesting his younger sister, police asked him if he would come in one more time. He agreed, and this time, they confronted him about the allegations of incest and molestation with Gail. He called the detectives sick and disgusting and denied their allegations. 
When confronted with statements from multiple witnesses, he eventually admitted to some, quote, innocent touching and exploration between siblings. He described the acts of a matter of mutual interest and normal childhood curiosity. But the police weren't buying it. When Ryan got home once again, he was enraged and began blaming Pam for rescinding her alibi and making him a suspect. Over the weekend, he began leaving numerous phone messages for the detectives. In one of the messages, he told detectives, quote, I don't know why I'm calling you again. I guess because I hate you and appreciate you at the same time. I think your son's a bitches, but you're a necessary evil. Guess that's a good way of putting it, you know what I mean? You go find my sister's killer. You're barking up the wrong tree here. I know nothing about it. You know, and digging up dirt from our family history, childhood indiscretions, you know that's not going to shed any more light on it. So we're done. You're an asshole. You both are. Both of you. After what you put my wife through. Ryan left almost 30 more messages just like this one. That's when detectives knew they had the right suspect. They felt Pam knew more than she was telling and decided they needed to talk to her one more time without Ryan's interference. On January 15, 2013, the cold case detectives contacted Pam at work and asked her if they could talk to her one more time. She agreed, but insisted that her human resources representative be present for the interview. During that interview, detectives told Pam what they had learned about Ryan in the previous few months. But once again, Pam stuck to her story that Ryan left for a few hours, and that's all she knew. Detectives were sure that Pam was holding something back, so they tried a third time to interview her. The third interview also took place at Pam's office, this time in the security office. But this time, it was just Pam and the detectives. Within minutes, Pam confessed, quote, Something inside me is telling me it's time for me to lift the burden off my shoulders and tell you what I know. That's when they asked Pam to leave work and come to the police station with them for a third interview. She agreed. Before the interview began, Pam agreed that her participation in the interview was voluntary and she was not threatened, coerced, or bullied by the detectives. It was in that third interview that Pam finally told the truth. The whole truth. On November 21st, Pam told Ryan that they needed to do laundry together. They both went to Pete's laundromat between 5 and 6 p.m. They did not return home until 8 o'clock p.m. Ryan came back home the same night, a few hours later. They both smoked some marijuana and then had sex. Afterward, Ryan left again, and she didn't see him until 9 o'clock a.m. the next morning when he knocked on the door. Ryan was visibly upset, and he had been crying, and he blurted out that he had killed Rick and Gail. Pam was in shock, and she asked him to leave while she thought about things. When he called her later, begging to come over, she reluctantly agreed. Pam agreed to drive with him over to his house. However, instead of driving directly to Ryan's home, he drove her to Rick and Gail's house. The two of them walked up to Rick's Chevy Blazer. She looked inside the vehicle and immediately began shaking. Ryan grabbed her wrist and walked her into the house, leading her to Rick and Gail's bedroom. He forced her next to Gail's body and told her, quote, If you go to the police or tell anybody what I did here, this could happen to you. Then he made a very odd statement. 
He pointed to Gail and said, isn't she beautiful? Considering she had three bullet wounds to her face and probably discolored from decomposition, it made the statement even more alarming to Pam. Then the two of them went over to Rick's house and she made her son a bottle. Rick's friend Jim came over and Rick told him that his sister and Rick had both been killed. This disclosure is important because Rick and Gail's bodies wouldn't be found for another 24 hours and Ryan wouldn't be notified for another 30 hours. Pam asked Ryan to take her home so that she could get ready for work. Before taking her home, Ryan showed her the 22 revolver he used in the murder, as well as a bag of clothing he wore during the murder. He put them in the back of his car, intending on disposing of them. He threatened Pam again to never tell anyone or what happened to Gail would happen to her. Then he instructed Pam to provide him with an alibi. Together, they concocted the story that they were at her friend Roz's home, doing laundry and babysitting her children. Pam told the detectives that the reason Ryan gave for killing her sister was jealousy. Ryan was jealous of Rick and Gail's suburban middle-class lifestyle. He felt that Gail thought that she was just too good for her family or too good to help her family. He was also worried that Gail, as an adult, might disclose their sexual relationship as children to Rick and it may make its way back to his parents and his siblings. He told Pam that when he went to their home that night that he had a heated discussion with Rick and Gail about a family matter. That matter was likely Gail's reluctance to allow her parents to park their RV on her land, as well as the fact that she had co-signed for his car and had made at least one of his payments. After the discussion, Rick asked Ryan to leave and never return. But he did return about 20 minutes later. He told Rick that he was having car trouble and needed Rick to give him a jump. Leaving Gail in bed, he went out to his truck to help Ryan with his car. Once Rick sat down, he went to the driver's window and motioned for him to roll the window down, and then shot him twice in the head. Then he went into the house and shot Gail in bed while she was sleeping. Pam told investigators that at Gail's funeral, she had to sweep what she knew under a rug and pretend like it never happened. A few months later, when the police wanted to interview Pam, Ryan made sure to remind her of their agreed-upon alibi. He told her that the previous owner of Gail's house was a drug informant in a motorcycle gang and to tell the police that she heard a rumor about a gang and being responsible. Throughout this entire final interview, Ryan began calling Pam's phone insistently. Ryan was extremely controlling throughout his marriage to Pam. He would call her daily at work to check up on her. And when he found out from her supervisor that she left with the police detectives, he became enraged. He began calling Pam repeatedly. By the time her interview was complete, he had called her over 100 times. That is when the cold case detectives decided to arrest Ryan for Rick and Gail's murder. They were afraid if he were to remain free that he would harm Pam. Ryan went to trial for his sister and brother-in-law's murder in March of 2014. His wife was the star witness against him. Following her testimony, he stood up and called her a liar and a black-hearted evil woman for making up lies against him. The prosecution's theory was that Ryan killed his sister to cover up his history of incest with an underlying financial motive steeped in jealousy at his sister's success. 
While Ryan insisted the police screwed up his sister's investigation, failing to properly investigate the motorcycle gang he believed was responsible. He also contended that Pam wanted a divorce, and by testifying against him, she walked away with everything. Now, this man was 52 when he went to trial and still believed he could control the narrative, he could control the jury, and control the trial. He testified on his own behalf, telling the jury that he never molested his little sister. He explained the few sexual encounters he had with Gail were when they were both very young. He described one incident where they were both naked after taking a shower together as, quote, just comparing body parts, so to speak, there was nothing sexual about it, unquote. This incident allegedly happened when Gail was 10 and he was 12, which is difficult to believe since they were almost three years apart in age. He told the jury about another incident that occurred when his family moved back to Michigan. This time, he was allegedly 13 and Gail was allegedly 11. He testified that he was snooping in his father's friend's car and found a marijuana pipe. He said both he and Gail smoked it and were, quote, two stoned brother and sister. He blamed the drugs on the fact that they, quote, groped on each other a little bit. Ryan admitted it was inappropriate behavior, but denied that the things had progressed further and denied forcing her into a sexual relationship. He told the jury that the third and final incident occurred when he was 14 and Gail was 13. Their ages are getting suspiciously closer together in Ryan's memory. In this alleged final incident, he told the jury that once again, they were both high, both clothed at the time. Gail, the aggressor, straddled him. However, this time, Gail allegedly complained that it hurt and that they switched positions with him on top. Yet again, he insisted during the final incident that nothing sexual happened because Gail told him she heard their father waking up. This was likely Gail's attempt to get the assault to stop. Once again, Ryan denied ever raping his sister. He also stuck to his original alibi, telling the jury that the police had bullied and coerced Pam into testifying against him, which Pam was willing to do because she wanted out of her controlling marriage. He also told the jury that Gail had refused to allow his parents to park their RV on her property. However, he said he was understanding of her position and not wanting her younger siblings to get hurt on her property. He told the jury that the night of Gail's murder, he was running low on gas and cigarettes and used a payphone to call Gail. But he denied ever going to their home. He also insisted he didn't hear about his sister's murder until he saw their house on TV and realized Gail and Rick were murdered. He also denied having any sexual or financial jealousy towards Rick, nor would he have been bothered if Gail revealed to Rick their, quote, childhood exploration and curiosity. On cross-examination, he admitted to beating on the glass door and demanding to know what was happening while Pam was first re-interviewed by the cold case detectives. He said he was worried about Pam because she had worked all week and had sore feet. He denied being angry at Pam for telling officers that his alibi was a lie. Instead, he said he was merely mystified and perplexed at her changing story. Ryan also alleged that the police threatened to charge Pam as an accessory if she didn't change her story. Once Ryan had been arrested, he admitted to trying to contact Pam from jail. He sent her 29 letters but denied that he was trying to tamper with a witness. 
Instead, he was only imploring her to stop lying and tell the truth about him. In his letters, he first accused Pam of lying and simply wanting a divorce. However, over time, he was trying to convince Pam that the detectives had abused her and pressured her. He likened the quote, a wolf pack chewing on an innocent lamb. Ryan was convicted and sentenced to two terms of life without the possibility of parole. During the sentencing hearing, Ryan ranted for nearly an hour about his unfair conviction. He told the judge that the detectives had, quote, mentally raped my wife and put her in a position to make her feel like she had to choose between telling a lie against me or going to prison. At one point, the judge threatened to bind and gag him if he didn't stop screaming. He told Ryan, quote, We'll have the deputies go out and duct tape you if it's necessary, but you're going to listen. This was a brutal homicide, and you're a cold-blooded murderer who killed two people. Michigan law mandates that you receive a maximum penalty, and that is, it is the sentence of this court that you spend the rest of your life in prison on two counts of murder. At the sentencing hearing, Rick's brother spoke and repeated the words that were spoken at his brother's funeral. He said, Father North began the funeral like I've never heard a funeral started before and will never again. He said, and I quote, This is not the work of the Lord. This is the work of the devil. And he went on to say that, quote, To that end, Ryan will be judged divinely. The holidays, the special times we used to only share with family, have been wiped away by Ryan, his anger, and his jealousy. Later, Pam Weingarten spoke after the trial as well. She told Michigan Live that the reason she didn't speak out earlier was out of fear of going to jail and leaving behind her children. But now that they were raised, she felt it was time to tell the truth. She stated, quote, I told myself I can't have this burden on my shoulders. I can't live with this. She explained the reason she married Ryan, despite his confession, was that she craved love and support for her two children, one of which was Ryan's at the time. Ryan had appealed his convictions three times since his sentencing in April of 2014. All three appeals have been denied. It's important to family members to have the cold cases of their murdered loved ones solved. It brings a measure of closure knowing that the perpetrator will be held accountable in the aftermath of a traumatic event. But when the perpetrator turns out to be another family member, that resolution that was supposed to bring peace instead brings more pain. Ryan Weingarten's mother believes her son is innocent of her daughter's murder. But the rest of the family knows his conviction brings the closure that they have all longed for. We want to send a special thank you to all of you who listen to Crime Salad and those that support us through Patreon. Thanks for being a part of Crime Salad. You guys are totally amazing. This week, let's welcome our new supporters. We have Denisha, Gabrielle, Bambing, Stacy, Alicia, and Monique. Enjoy the ad-free listens to our weekly episodes and bonus content. And just a quick reminder, we are doing a virtual live show on moment.co. It's completely online. It's going to be a lot of fun. So make sure you get your ticket for March 2nd. And those of you who are Patreon members, you actually get a really nice discount. Check it out on our page or just message us if you need any help finding it. 
We will be doing the show at 8 p.m. Eastern time. If you need the link, check out the description of this episode or just go to moment.co slash crime salad. And as always, thank you so much for listening. We will be with you next week. Hi, this is Daniel Rue the Real GM Radio Podcast. It's a Texas showdown in the postseason, and BetOnline is your number one source for all your baseball wagering information with up-to-the-minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. BetOnline has everything you need to stay up to speed on each league championship series all the way through the World Series. And don't forget, BetOnline is where you get the latest game odds, spreads, and totals for the NFL and college football right at your fingertips. BetOnline has real-time updates on statistics, news, and odds. We're serious up betting on football. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action at Bet Online, where the game starts. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.